Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. Let's talk surgical neonates. Even if your unit isn't a surgical NICU, every NICU nurse will encounter an infant with complex surgical anomalies. Understanding the unique needs of these babies is important as we anticipate their delivery, stabilization, and possible transport to a surgical NICU. What are the immediate stabilization measures and immediate preoperative management that needs to be initiated for our babies? How do we guide and educate the parents through this journey? I am joined by two surgical neonatal nurse practitioners, Taryn Edwards and Melissa Powell, who have dedicated advancing the care provided to this population through research, QI projects, and nursing staff education. Let's get right into it. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk surgical neonates. Um, A lot of us in the NICU have experience with patients that have problems that develop during their hospitalization that might require surgery. But I think what's really important is what do you do when you're the nurse and you go down to the delivery room and you are surprised with a patient that has some sort of complex surgical anomaly? And maybe you aren't capable of at your institution to perform surgery and we need to send them out to a surgical center in a NICU in a children's hospital. Can you discuss um, things that a nurse must know and make sure that they are prepared when they are attending a delivery of a complex surgical patient? Sure. So um, I think the most important piece is as you're preparing any patient with a complex surgical anomaly is to be stable certified um, and be able to ensure the stabilization prior to transport and to ensure that safe transport from a birth hospital to a tertiary care center um, is followed. And so most of us know what stable stands for. And as we go through some of the most common surgical diagnoses that we see, we'll point out key points to each diagnosis that should be taken into consideration um, and paid close attention to. So STABLE stands for um, an acronym, and it's sugar and safe care, temperature, airway, blood pressure, lab work, and emotional support. And it is within the role of the clinical nurse to ensure that a baby is safe and stable before they're placed in an ambulance or a helicopter and be taken to a children's hospital. And I think when you put it that way and you, you know, have that acronym and, you know, we think, okay, these are the things that we have to focus on. And those are the things that we focus on in every baby in every delivery room. Right. So, you know, we have the tools to do that. Um, But I think, you know, people get anxious when they know that there's a surgical um, anomaly. Um, And I, I think that, you know, by us discussing, hopefully, you know, we could give everybody the tools and the education they need um, to feel a little bit more comfortable when they attend these deliveries. Yes, I think that table really helps um, keep everyone organized in the delivery room. And um, everyone is always nervous, um, especially in undiagnosed um, congenital anomalies. The emotions in the delivery room can rise and it can easily get to be scattered without an organized thought process. So stable really helps keep everyone um, organized and at bay. 
So um, moving forward, um, one of our first diagnoses that is very often seen is tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia. Um, this is often not diagnosed um, prior to birth. Um, it, the maternal history can be significant for polyhydraminose. But again, um, as nurses and nurse practitioners, we want to keep in mind that not everyone in the country has access to adequate prenatal care that might diagnose polyhydraminose to start. So this is something that we always want to be thinking of um, when we are in the delivery room. Um, some clinical history um, that might be present would be excessive drooling, um, any respiratory distress syndrome, coughing or choking at birth, um, or abdominal distension. Um, it's not always diagnosed in the delivery room. Uh, in labor and delivery or after initiating PO feeds, choking spells, um, any MSS or respiratory instability surrounding feeding or just maintaining one's own oral secretions can be present. Taryn, have you seen this frequently um, in your practice? Absolutely. Um, one of the most difficult diagnoses to uh, diagnose in utero is TEF and esophageal atresia. As our technology at uh, fetal surgery centers uh, continue to advance, we become a little bit more skilled in order to diagnose it um, before birth. But I feel as if there are a lot of the admissions that we see at children's hospitals are TEFs and EAs that come from community hospitals and birth centers that then need to be transported so that the baby can undergo surgery. And this is the importance of us knowing as bedside nurses, you know, what all of these surgical anomalies, symptoms and signs entail, because we're the ones at the bedside that, you know, can alert the medical team. Hey, you know, this, this baby is, is having difficulty with his PO feeding. I, you know, these are the things that I've been noticing and maybe we need to look into it further. So, you know, your unit might not actually, you know, do the surgeries, but it's really important that you know, the things to be looking out for when you see like signs of distress or, um, you know, other signs and symptoms of some kind of a surgical anomaly. Yeah. And then another important thing as um, nurses, especially in um, the postpartum area, is that mom um, does not have a full milk supply initially after birth. So in everything is so breastfeeding friendly, which is wonderful, but the goal is to put this baby to breast immediately after birth. And if she doesn't have a supply, it could be one to two days until she has some adequate milk supply that this can present. Um, so it might be presented a little later. A couple spit-ups of just mucus in these babies could be just looked upon as normal. But in reality, um, when further investigation is done with an NG tube attempted to be placed and not being able to pass it through the entire esophagus, um, it's recognized that we might be dealing with an esophageal atresia. So for a gold standard diagnosis, um, it is the inability to pass a feeding tube. Um, often it is um, not passed past eight or nine centimeters, and it X-ray can show that it is coiled in the proximal esophagus. There are five types of esophageal atresia. Um, you can have 
esophageal atresia with a distal TEF, which is the most common defect. It presents in most 87% of all um, TEF and esophageal atresia. You could have just an isolated esophageal atresia, which does not include the fistula. Um, you can have isolated TF or an H-type fistula. Um, and also, lastly, an esophageal atresia with a proximal TF. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that in the H-type fistula, it is often um, difficult to diagnose this, and this can present later in life. Some of these babies um, come back with recurrent pneumonias. Um, there can be a bronchoscopy that's done that does not catch the H-type fistula. Um, and unfortunately, I think that both Taryn and I have seen in our practice um, these babies that just present with this long history of recurrent pneumonias. And that's always something as a nurse practitioner, having seen some bad stories um, that you want to keep in mind when you're dealing with um, a long history of recurrent pneumonia. So we have a baby that we're caring for that we suspect is TEF. We try to pass the feeding tube, um, like Melissa mentioned, and we've decided we need to send this baby to the children to a children's hospital or a surgical care facility. Uh, what would you recommend the nurse do to be ready to have this baby ready for transport? And how do we educate the parents? And you know, I'm sure it's a very stressful time for them. They weren't anticipating this, and what? tips do you have um, for the nurses for how they're going to get these babies ready to go to the hospital? And then how do we tell this to the parents? Absolutely. So I feel that if we follow stable, like Melissa said, um, it keeps everyone organized. The most important for babies that have TEF or EA um, is understand that they're not going to eat for an extended period of time. So it's important to either place umbilical lines or a peripheral IV and have IV fluids going to maintain hydration, obtain a blood sugar prior to transport, and then place a replogal tube into the proximal esophagus that's to low continuous suction. If you do not have a replogal, any gastric decompression tube will be adequate for the transport and for the safety of the baby being transported. The other piece prior to going to the children's hospital or surgical care center is to obtain an x-ray, confirm the inability to pass the feeding tube or the replogal, but you also want to evaluate lung expansion. Most of the time, babies that have a tracheoesophageal fistula will have some degree of respiratory distress. Does not necessarily mean that the baby needs to be intubated, but because there is a fistula present, they're at higher risk of aspiration of gastric contents through the fistula into the airway. Very important if the baby needs higher level respiratory non-invasive support. CPAP is okay to administer, but please, please, please ensure that there is an anus present and that it is truly patent. There are many times, especially with babies that do have PEFEA, 
and you follow a vectoral association, which we're going to talk about briefly in a minute, that they may have an imperfect anus or an anus that appears to be patent, but is not actually patent. The other piece just highlights is um, if the referring hospital wants to send a blood culture and start the baby on antibiotics, that is also appropriate. Um, and if you feel the need, if you're getting labs, you can also get a blood gas, and that's in prep to ensure that the baby is safe for transport. The last piece of stable is the emotional support. And it is our job as nurses and nurse practitioners to adequately prepare the parent and provide anticipatory guidance of what to expect not only for the transport, but what will happen once the baby gets to the children's hospital or a surgery care center. Next, we're going to be doing uh, the vectoral workup. So this includes a genetics consult. Um, vectoral itself is an association which is significant for any vertebral or rib anomalies, anal anomalies, cardiac abnormalities, tracheoesophageal anomalies, renal anomalies, and limb anomalies. The baby's now with the children's hospital or the surgical center. And we did, you know, the whole workup. We did the echo, the vactual workup. We ruled that out. Or maybe we did find some other abnormalities. But what do we do surgically to correct these? So, Jill, um, all of these babies need um, surgery at some point to correct this. And um, as in all surgeries, it's really important for a successful handoff between nursing, um, the medical team, anesthesia, and the surgeon so that they can be aware of any other abnormalities that are happening with the baby. Um, that's number one for safety before we even go into the surgical repair. But the surgical repair itself um, consists of a bronchoscopy the ligation of any type of tracheoesophageal fistula. As we discussed earlier, not all babies have a fistula to begin with. Um, but if there is a fistula connection present, it needs to be ligated. And then the esophageal, uh, the actual esophageal atresia repair. Um, dependent on the baby's size or the type of um, tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia, the esophageal atresia repair might be done in conjunction with the ligation of the fistula or separately. So in esophageal atresia, um, one of the most important things that the surgeon is looking for is the length between the two, the proximal and the distal portions of the esophagus. Um, there is it is most commonly measured by the vertebral bodies that are present in between the gap. So if there is more than a vertebral body gap of three vertebral bodies, it is determined that that is a long gap esophageal atresia. In a long gap esophageal atresia, um, the most important thing is time for growth for the baby so that the two pieces of the esophagus are able to be connected um, safely and effectively. What is most commonly needed for growth is good nutrition. So a G-tube is placed 
in order to have a access point to be able to feed the baby and truly and grow the baby until baby is larger and the two pieces are able to be connected. Serial calibrations are needed um, to determine the timing for repair. So essentially, um, this is measurements that are taken to see how close the two pieces are to be connected. So in the opposite approach, um, if there is a short gap between the proximal and distal esophagus, it can be repaired in the same surgery. Um, these babies, we can anticipate for the family to guide them that they will come back with a test tube. Um, they off, most frequently come back intubated on a ventilator and until um, a fluoroscopy study is done showing that there is no evidence of an esophageal leak, um, feeds are held and the chest tube remains present. No, this is a lot for um, a parent to, you know, comprehend. And, you know, especially if this was an undiagnosed um, anomaly, you know, delivering at one hospital, their child getting whisked away, and then, you know, the really long surgical process and, and how tedious it is to restart feeds um, and, and the repairs. And I think that's important for nurses to understand and be able to communicate with the parents and, and support them you know, through this journey. And it's not just a quick fix and your baby will be fine. Um, but, you know, for them to make them aware that this, this is going to be a, a process um, and, and kind of set that up in the beginning. So they, you know, ha don't have such high expectations that, you know, it's a, it's a, an immediate fix to be sent to the um, surgical unit and the children's hospital. Yeah, I agree, Jill. I feel like one of my, um, most important jobs as a nurse practitioner after the surgery is um, once the baby has recovered and we are off the ventilator and we're talking about pulling the chest tube out is starting to guide the family in um, anticipation for the trials and tribulations of PO feeding with this population. Um, and this goes way past discharge. And I think as neonatal nurse practitioners and neonatal nurses, we only see to the point of when they go home. But um, in talking to a lot of these families that I've taken care of in the past, this is a very, very long-term diagnosis. And we're talking about years of speech therapy and subsequent dilations of the esophagus. And you don't definitely don't want to scare the family um, in the beginning, in the delivery room. However, I think that, you know, having an, having a appropriate way of preparing them for the future and educating them and empowering them to be an advocate and, you know, the primary PO feeder and, you know, the, the number one educator for nurses, this should be the parent once we get to that point as to, what is the most effective way to feed this baby, um, I think is really important. So moving down the body, um, we often see a lot of abdominal wall defects like a gastroschisis and phalliceal. And, you know, it can be quite frightening to, uh, you know, a, a 
delivery room nurse and the NICU nurse and the team that's down um, at the delivery, especially if it was unanticipated. Um, you know, but luckily we can diagnose them prenatally. But, you know, on the aspect of DR management and DR care and stabilization for transport, um, what can you tell us about those? So it's actually pretty similar for all abdominal wall defects. The most important piece, regardless of whether it's a gastroschisis or an enthalocele, is to ensure that the baby is maintained in a normothermic environment. These are at very high risk for insensible water loss, but then places them at risk for hypothermia. The other piece for both of these diagnoses would be that they're not going to eat for a period of time. Um, and because of the location of the abdominal wall defect, it, um, you're unable to place an umbilical line. So these babies usually will get a peripheral IV and then long-term will need a central line like a pick catheter um, in order to provide um, parental nutrition until the baby is able to have enteral feed. So most important as we prepare these babies for transport is IV access, IV fluids, and to maintain their temperature, not only pre-transport, but during the transport to the children's hospital. So how about managing the bowel? What, what should the nurses do, um, the DR nurses or the NICU nurses, the, the team, what should they do about the bowel or the exposed bowel um, or the infallocele? Yeah, so talking about specifically a gastroschisis, um, some of the things you want to keep in mind is that most are diagnosed um, prenatally if the mother had adequate prenatal care. But we've all been there where you show up at a delivery to a mom that didn't have adequate prenatal care, and you're not sure what to expect. Um, in the event of a gastroschisis, um, the, what you want to keep in mind is keeping the bowel safe. So um, keep the bowel moist by placing the baby into a bowel bag that you have present. Um, you can line it with about an ounce or so of um, sterile water. Um, you want to, if possible, keep that sterile water to be a room temperature or slightly warm. Um, and immediately place the baby in a right sideline position to prevent the bowel from sinking and avoid vascular compromise. As a nurse or a nurse practitioner, you want to assess the bowel. Make sure that um, you can report off to the emergency transport team that's taking the baby to a children's hospital um, what the bowel looks like. Are there any obvious areas of atresia? Is the bowel well perfused? What color is it? Is it swollen? Is it constricted? Um, those are all really important things that can be communicated to the accepting hospital. The other thing as nurses is that we want to gently um, place a gastric decompression tube to suction. Um, again, gently. Um, place it because we don't know what the rest of the baby's anatomy. Um, you should expect that you're going to have a lot of gastric losses. So um, dark green bile is completely common. Um, we, if you have access to x-ray to ensure adequate tube placement, um, I would recommend that. 
If not, making sure that we are aspirating back to see that it's truly in the stomach and that um, you have sufficient suction to be able to aspirate this bowel contents. What do we do about um, our fluids? We want a slightly higher fluid limit to accommodate gastric losses and any insensible losses um, that we're losing through the bowel that's on the outside of the body. Um, at my hospital, we do about 100 mLs per kilo per day to start um, in order to find a good balance to avoid further dilation of the bowel and also replace the losses that are occurring through the stomach and insensibly. Taryn, what are you currently doing at um, your hospital right now? Exactly the same. Um, so if we typically would start um, at 80 per kilo um, for the total fluids, we usually will start at 100, but it also depends on the amount of losses. So it's very, very important as a as the bedside nurse to ensure that there's adequate intake and output document from the Salem stump as well as um, any losses around the bowel. Um, it's really hard when the baby's in the bowel bag because they'll pee and they poop in the bag. Like you're not putting a diaper on the baby. So we're guessing really based on what the baby looks like, what the blood pressure is, and then if depending on the, the age of the baby, um, if we're going to go ahead and get um, electrolytes or not to determine if we're okay with our fluid status or if the baby needs a little bit more. So when we're talking about a surgical repair, we're looking at um, either a primary or a staged repair. Um, a primary repair it involves reduction of the bowel without the need um, for an operating room. So whether that be um, a repair at the bedside, um, repair um, without the use of sutures is a new and highly researched topic. Um, and then we also do the more traditional approach, which is a stage repair. Um, this is, involves the silo placement um, with serial reductions to slowly reduce the bowel into the abdominal cavity. Well, for anybody that has cared for gastroschisis kids, uh, we all know that they can be very difficult uh, in more ways than one. Um, but, you know, we have such complex issues after surgery. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the complexities that we're going to face and, and how do you relay all of that to the parents? Because it, 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 it's as frustrating as it is for the nurse. I can't imagine, you know, having to deal with that as, as a parent and, you know, all of the ups and downs and the roller coaster ride that they go with postoperatively. So I think it's important to note that what the bowel looks like and as an assessment when it's on the outside of the body, that continues when the bowel is placed inside the body. And that really kind of dictates how fast um, the baby gets discharged after surgery, right? One of the biggest complications that we face for babies with gastroschisis is trying to get them onto full feed. Um, and parents often have an unrealistic expectation that once the surgery is done or the bowel's inside the body, that the baby is going to eat within a couple of days. And sometimes it takes weeks in order for us to even start feeds and then be able to successfully get them uh, taking full volume, getting them to maintain hydration and actually grow. These babies are also at high risk 
or neck, necrotizing enterocolitis. And so we're constantly monitoring and assessing for that complication during the hospitalization. For the omphaliceals that we see as another abdominal wall defects, how does that vary in our delivery room care and our delivery room management? That's an important one, Jill. Um, I think that the number one thing that you want to keep in mind with the omphaliceal is to evaluate and assess the sac and ensure that there is no rupture of any fluid and um, the main goal being to protect the sac for a successful and safe transfer. Um, in the event of rupture, you're going to be dealing with like massive fluid resuscitation for hypovolemia um, and want to remember to start some broad coverage antibiotics in that case. Um, what do you do with this sac? <laughs> That's a, a whole separate question. Um, it really depends on what you have available at your hospital. Um, our preference or my hospital's preference is to um, cover the sac with a xeriform gauze and cling rack um, to protect the seal. But if this isn't available, um, Vaseline gauze works it well as well. Um, I've received some babies just from other hospitals with a saline-soaked um, cling wrap around it, which works as well. But you are at that point also risking temperature instability uh, because of dependent on the length of time it takes the baby to get to your hospital. Um, the other things you want to keep in mind is again gently placing a jet gastric decompression tube um, to um, low continuous or low intermittent wall suction. Another thing that you want to do is keep um, an appropriate um, fluid limit to uh, compensate for any gastric losses that you're dealing with, or again, as in the same with gastroschisis, any insensible losses. And keep in mind that you might need to be dealing with increased respiratory respiratory support due to any pulmonary hypoplasia. One thing to think about too with these babies is they tend to have pulmonary hypoplasia. Taryn, can you go over what exactly is pulmonary hypoplasia and you know what things we need to look out for and, and how we would treat that in these babies? So pulmonary hypoplasia in very basic terms means small lungs. And so these babies, because of the abdominal wall defect, if you were to get an x-ray on a baby with an omphalocele, you would have a very long, narrow chest wall. But when you look at the lung development, because the abdominal organs are herniated uh, through the abdomen and covered by amnion, ultimately, the lung tissue doesn't develop correctly. And then the blood vessels that support the lung tissue also are abnormal. So not only do these babies have pulmonary hypoplasia, but they're also at risk for pulmonary hypertension. One thing to prepare the parents for is how it will be repaired um, through surgery or if it would be a delayed closure. So if the umbilical defect is less than five centimeters, that would be a candidate for a primary closure. In the setting of a giant seal, there are two different ways that a surgeon may determine how to repair this. 
One is a stage closure in the immediate neonatal period, which is called a Schuster procedure. The second would be a delayed repair. And what we have commonly called it is the paint and wait. And so we basically wait for the amnion to epithelialize over. And when the baby is much bigger and there is more abdominal domain, then we go in for a repair of the cell. The other important piece to note with babies that have cell is that 50 to 70% of these babies will have an associated defect, whether that's trisomy 13 or 18, congenital heart disease, facial cleft, or GU anomalies. Babies that have small cells are also at risk for something called Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, in which places the baby at high risk for hypoglycemia and abdominal tumors. So geneticists will follow these babies very closely and will rule out Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome in this patient population. All right, ladies, let's talk about the big one, congenital diaphragmic hernia. Um, I think that's one that probably brings the most fear um, to NICU nurses if it's uh, on diagnosed um, and also diagnosed if you're attending that, that delivery. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. Let's try to ease some of um, the fears of the NICU nurses that are attending these deliveries. So the most important piece for a baby who has been diagnosed with CDH is to perform immediate intubation. So you're going to skip a couple of steps of NRP and go right to intubation. Once the baby is intubated, then you're going to dry stem and go down the NRP pathway. The importance of this is so that the baby doesn't entrain air in the bowel, which then can become dilated and compress the already hypoplastic set of lungs. After the baby's intubated and the routine steps of NRP have been performed, it's then very important to place a gastric decompression tube the low continuous suction. Dental ventilation is also very important in the delivery room. We like to keep our pressures on the lower side with a very fast respiratory rate. So we're talking about PIPs less than 25 and a PEEP of 5 to 6. And this is all in relation to the severity of the pulmonary hypoplasia and their risk for pneumothorax with higher pressures. It's also important to attempt line placement. It's difficult to get uh, an umbilical venous catheter in place depending on whether the liver is up or down, but please try if you can, as well as an umbilical arterial catheter. If either one of these are unsuccessful, a peripheral IV or a peripheral art line would be appropriate to place in order for safe transport. So let's say it's an undiagnosed. CDH patient and the mom comes in and delivers the baby. You say we don't follow the normal steps of NRP, but how would the baby present right after delivery, which would make us think, oh, wait, wait, maybe, maybe there is something um, else going on um, to kind of prevent us from doing these things that could make the situation worse. So babies will present with significant respiratory distress to a point where you're going to follow the steps of NRP. And the baby is going to get intubated because the baby needs to be intubated. And then once you get that x-ray, the 
It's usually the telltale Surprise! coming. Surprise. The baby has a left <laughs> And you're like, oh, it all makes sense now. And you're like, ah. Yes. So after we get that x-ray and we are talking about what do we do with this baby? Um, we're not keeping him at our hospital. In terms of transferring the baby to a children's hospital um, that is able to care for a baby with CDH, I think it's really important to discuss altering our definition of what is a successful transport. Um, in other words, we want to talk about not having the baby arrive in perfect condition, but most importantly, arriving at the accepting hospital both quickly and safely. For us, the most important thing is ET tube position, having an endotracheal tube in correct position so that the transport team can attempt adequate ventilation and oxygenation. And again, as Taryn was discussing, adequate access because that helicopter or ambulance ride um, can be dicey and we need to be able to give whatever support that is needed, any vasopressor support, blood products, or anything to get that baby to the hospital safe. Once the baby gets to the children's hospital in a timely fashion, which is very important as someone that puts babies on ECMO, we really appreciate the, um, you know, the organization that we've always talked about and just the teamwork that goes into bringing these babies um, to the um, centers. But what would we expect um, for treatment for these babies? And what can we educate the parents for what they could be expecting? So once the baby gets to a children's hospital, we will do the pre-ECMO requirements in case the baby decompensates and needs to be placed on ECMO emergently. Those include a head ultrasound, which will be to check for any bleeding in the brain, as well as an echo to determine if there's any congenital heart disease. This patient population is at high risk for pulmonary hypertension related to pulmonary hypoplasia. The pulmonary hypertension is managed in collaboration with cardiology as well as the neonatology and surgery teams. Treatment modalities include inhaled nitric oxide, remodulin, and prostaglandin. We are constantly monitoring for the development of pulmonary hypertension because it can develop at any time even after surgical repair. So with all of these surgical anomalies that we talked about, it seems like the underlying theme um, that keeps coming up is teamwork and communication. Um, I, I feel that, you know, you guys sharing your expertise with us is how we care for these babies immediately, um, preoperatively, how do we stabilize them in the DR is um, really useful information. And it, helps, you know, arm the nurses with the education and the knowledge that they need in order to make sure their babies are stable and ready to go for transport and can communicate that to the transport team because that's, you know, communication's key. We always talk about having huddles. Um, and I think that's something that we should take on and have a huddle pre-transport and, um, you know, talk with the transport team that's coming in and what we found while we were caring for the baby, you know, at the sending hospital. Well, I totally agree that having the appropriate team is essential for a successful transport. Um, another important point that I touched upon briefly before was keeping all the team members calm and providing adequate and 
successful communication to the accepting hospital. Um, having all members be calm is really important, again, in the presence of the family who was not expecting to be transferred to a children's hospital or level four NICU. I also think that it's important that nurses are knowledgeable about each one of these common surgical anomalies in order to adequately prepare the parents for the transfer to a children's hospital, but also to provide anticipatory guidance on what to expect once the baby gets there. You may not know every single detail, but being able to provide them and support them during this difficult time will be the most important thing that you can do as a bedside nurse. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I I think you've really um, taught us a lot of very good tips um, and really gave us the knowledge to empower us to um, speak up when we're in the delivery room and and lead these um, really difficult times um, and and be prepared for for when this happens to us when you know we have those surprise undiagnosed surgical anomalies that we face in the delivery room. But thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.